0: this is your show we're glad you're here we want to help you in your veterinary career welcome to the cone of shame with dr andy rourke hey everybody i'm dr andy rourke and this is the second episode of the cone of shame show guys this is a new type of episode I uh, did an interview with the amazing Dr. Sarah Boston. That was our first episode. This is a whole different type of episode. This is called How Do You Treat That? And you're going to be hearing uh, a lot of these in the Kona Shame show as we go on in our pilot season. But essentially, I talk to the smartest, most badass people that I know as a doctor. And I go, hey, uh, you know when this thing comes into your practice, uh, how do you uh, how do you treat that? And that's what I ask, because that's what I want to know. And so these are going to be short episodes. They're going to be straight to the point. You'll get a good feel for what I'm talking about when you listen to this episode. Let's get into it. The amazing, the brilliant, the anesthesia nerd. She, she loves that title. Tasha McNerney. Here we go. Hey, gang. So I am here with the one and only the original anesthesia nerd, Tasha McNerney. Tasha, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm super good. Let's lay out your uh, credentials really fast. You are, uh, so the official credentials are, you are VTS in anesthesia. You are a certified vet pain practitioner. You are the, I mean, would you say the mama of veterinary anesthesia nerds? Like you,
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe Steven Satal and Darcy Palmer would fight me for that now since they're oh, my co-administrators. Yes. But yeah, definitely um, Anesthesia Nerds is my baby.
0: Anesthesia uh, Nerds, for those who don't know, and it's hard to believe that there's a lot of people who don't know because you've got like what, 30,000 members of Anesthesia
1: 36, Nerds? 36,000.
0: Goodness gracious. So uh, Anesthesia Nerds is a Facebook group predominantly, i we start off with a Facebook group and it is pure, hardcore, veterinary anesthesia all day, every day. And now they've got their own conference, um, which is in Las Vegas. You've got that coming up this year, right? You guys are moving forward. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, it's going to be in Las Vegas at the Aquendo Center, October 28th and 29th. And it's just two days of nothing but anesthesia and pain management. So for the people who either are looking to get their specialty or really looking to get hardcore, in-depth, and in anesthesia... And pain management—that's all we're going to be doing for two
0: days. One of the things I love the most about what you do is that it is not broken up into um, into titles. It's not like, oh, this is veterinarian anesthesia. It's like, no, this is anesthesia, and you have a huge technician uh, population that that attends. You've got support staff. You've got veterinarians. You've got—I mean—you've got specialists that come. It's just really this awesome focus on the craft of anesthesia?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I wanted. I mean, obviously I'm a technician, so I am partial to the technician uh, role in anesthesia, but to me, you have to have, you have to approach anesthesia as a team Um, you have to have that conversation back and forth between the doctor and the technician about the patient. So that's why we opened the conference to both doctors and technicians. We, at the conference, our speakers are anesthesiologists and specialty technicians. So it really is about the whole team coming together to do the
0: best for the patient. Yeah. Awesome. So great. So great. Cool. Uh, You ready to, you ready to play? How do you treat that? Yeah. Sweet. So you're the (laughs) You're the first partner I've had on how do you treat that? I'm not even exactly sure if it's how do you treat that or how do you treat that or how do you in the audience treat that?
1: Yeah,
0: it's definitely I mean, not. I just how want to get I it right. I really that.
1: want to win that car. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's definitely not. How do I treat that? Because that's <laughs> that's not good. Um, <laughs> so let's do this thing. So here here's how it works. Let's lay down. Um, let's sit on a case that most people have probably seen in practice and I just want to run through it with you and I want to make sure that uh that honestly that I would uh cover these bases that I've got my essentials locked down that I'm comfortable and I'm in a good place and um that I feel calm cool and collected coming out the other side of this case and so yeah that's that's what we'll do sound good yeah sounds
1: good let's
0: let's take the classic dentistry. So we've got to say we got a dentistry and it's it's going along. So this has been a long dentistry. Let's say we've got a four-year-old, maybe five-year-old Shih Tzu that appears to be healthy going in other than the dental disease. So shih tzu, little teeth going everywhere, uh <laughs> blood work looks good. You know, just on a regular wellness bl- uh blood panel, just a, a pre-surge. The dog looks good. He's been under anesthesia for a while and our mean arterial pressure is trending downward and we're getting down into the 60s and I'm looking and I'm going, oh, you know, we've got it. We've got another hour here. You know, we've got to do some, we've got to do some more rads. We've got to do some other, some more extractions. All right. Well, how do you, how do you treat that? How do you, how do you deal with that?
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a typical anesthesia answer, which is that it depends. Um, but this is, something that you can treat. You don't have to be super intimidated and think that you need, you know, arterial lines going and, um, you know, norepinephrine or anything like that. This is very common. Um, but what I like to tell technicians and doctors is if the technician's monitoring anesthesia and you see this starts to trend downward and you've got three readings with the mean arterial pressure in the 60s, Definitely communicate that with your doctor and then start to talk about what your plan could be. So when we think about our mean arterial pressure, in the back of our mind, we have to think back to school and remember that our mean arterial pressure is made up of our cardiac output and our systemic vascular resistance. So we have to think about, could one of these variables be affected and is something affecting one of these variables? and almost always the culprit is drugs. So you have to think about what drugs did I give in my pre-med that could be affecting um, systemic vascular resistance. So if you gave a drug like acepromazine, um, if you gave a drug during induction like propofol, if you are using an inhalant like isofluorine or sevoflurane, those things are going to vasodilate and they're going to decrease your systemic vascular resistance, which means they're going to drop your blood pressure. So if you have an hour or more work, worth of work to do, and you have your sebofluorine or isoflurane set at 3%, you have to think, all right, I don't want to keep vasodilating them, so let's back it down on the isoflurane. This is why local blocks for dentistry are going to be your absolute best friend. And again, a skill you can teach your technician, so that way you can be doing other things, calling the owner, going over the estimate, et cetera. But if you can have your technician placing the local blocks, then you don't have to have your patient on 3 4% isoflurane. Um, and an anesthesiologist that I used to work with always said that if you have to go much higher than your uh, MAC on your SIBO, your ISO, then something's wrong in your pain management plan, so you want to assess that. So always try to keep your isoflurane or those things that are really vasodilating, SIBO, fluorine, isoflurane, propofol, to a minimum if you're trying to prevent hypotension. Now, another component to that is you also have to look at, again, remember back into that equation when I was saying systemic vascular resistance, but also cardiac output, your heart rate plays a role in cardiac output. So as a technician, I wanna look, okay, what's my patient's heart rate? Are is it normal? Are they bradycardic? This is where take the technician listening to the patient beforehand, feeling the pulses before any drugs are involved. So if I knew that Shih Tzu started out with a heart rate of 120, but now under anesthesia has a heart rate of 58, then I can bet that probably this bradycardia is a little bit responsible for decreasing my cardiac output. So I might talk to my doctor about doing something like glycopyrrolate in addition to reducing my inhalant. Now, another thing you have to remember when we're talking about drugs is, is your patient bradycardic because they've been given an alpha-2, right? We use dexmedetomidine a lot in these patients. So if they're really bradycardic because they're under the influence of an alpha-2, then you have to be a little more careful when you're giving them an anticholinergic. But it doesn't mean that they can't have one. You just have to watch your timing. You know, Are they still very vasoconstricted peripherally but bradycardic? then we probably wouldn't add something like glyco. But if I'm a technician and I see that we still have lots of work to do and I know that my patient has been at a certain level of isofluorine, I'm going to try to drop down my isofluorine. And I'm also going to replace any volume. So maybe give them some fluid boluses of crystalloids. I might talk to my doctor about whether or not colloids would be warranted. Um, And if that still doesn't work, then I want to talk to my doctor about further measures, which may include getting rid of our inhalant or really minimizing our inhalant as much as possible and starting them on a constant rate infusion of something like ketamine or an opioid, whatever you guys have at your clinic, whatever works best. Um, And then if that doesn't work and you still have another hour worth of work to do, you've tried a ketamine CRI, you've lowered their inhalant, you've tried fluid boluses, then you have to look at starting something that is going to increase their contractility, maybe work on those alpha or beta receptors, and that's where your dopamine and dobutamine are gonna come into play. So fluid boluses, lower your inhalant, start a CRI of an analgesic or something like ketamine, and if all of those still don't work and your heart rate is normal, then you wanna go with something like dopamine or dobutamine.
0: Okay. So dopamine, dobutamine uh, probably is a final step when yes. we're not getting other results. How much yeah. time is going by here? Like from the time we start noticing this trending downward and we start to sort of tinkle, tinker with, uh, with the inhaled anesthesia and then we start to, you know, maybe increase fluids and we're looking at pain control. Like how quickly are we moving down this list? I mean, when do you get to like a ketamine CRI? How much time has passed? or Or are there other clinical signs that are really driving that decision for you?
1: No, there are definitely other things, and that's what I, you know, like my technicians, I don't want them to only focus on the mean arterial pressure. Certainly, that is the number that we're focusing on, and we're watching those trends. But also, look at your patient overall. Um, one of the really nice things about these multi-parameter monitors that we have nowadays is not only will they give us blood pressure, but we're also able to read end title CO2, the cool thing about end CO2, if I can like really geek out for a minute, is that not only will end-tidal CO2 give you kind of a vision of what's going on with your patient ventilation-wise, but end CO2 provides an indirect window into what's going on with your patient cardiac output-wise. So I tell my techs also, look at the end CO2. Is it within normal range? Is it low? I mean, if your end CO2 is really low, then that means there might be some problem with cardiac output or volume status. So you use that as well. But also physical parameters. Feel the pulses. Uh, Take a look at the patient's mucous membrane color. Take a look at their capillary refill time and the procedure being done. I know right now we're talking about a dentistry, but certainly if you were in with a splenectomy and something that's hypovolemic, you have to think that their problem is probably volume. So they need to replace volume, right? Right. With a dentistry patient, something like this, it's so common, we don't really think that they are losing mass amounts of volume. So usually we'll do two or three fluid boluses, and if that doesn't work, then we move on to something like a CRI, and if that still doesn't work, then we're moving on to dopamine, dobutamine. Now, it really depends on the patient how quickly these things progress. So certainly if we have a Shih Tzu where we know the kidneys are healthy, we know that they're otherwise healthy and they're cardiac healthy, we might not be doing it as quickly as we have a 14 year old cat that may have an elevated kidney levels. Then we really wanna make sure that we don't do anything to further insult those kidneys, right? Right. So we might be going much faster in our lineup. Whereas with this younger Shih Tzu, it might be 20 to 30 minutes before we get around to setting up our ketamine CRI, putting it on, lowering our ISO to 1%, et cetera. If I have one of those older kidney cats and I know they're gonna be under anesthesia for a while and I know that I'm probably gonna be dealing with hypotension, I have my technicians and I do this personally, I set up the ketamine CRI before we even get the patient under anesthesia. So that way, once I get a mean arterial pressure starting to trend in the 60s on that cat or a Doppler, anything less than 80 on the Doppler on that cat, I'm starting them on a ketamine CRI and then lowering their inhalant as much as possible.
0: Perfect. No, that, that totally makes sense. Any, any thoughts or words on the crystalloids that you pick up or pick out? Does it, does it, I mean, it's generally whatever you're planning to use for the procedure, right?
1: Yeah. So every clinic's different. I mean, I, I say in my lecture, some people are norm R, some people are LRS, like, I don't care, have a dance off, whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that sometimes will come into play is if you're using um, so just straight sodium chloride because it's, it's much more acidic because it's not a balanced solution. So if you're doing, you know, super high amounts of sodium chloride, you might have to worry about your electrolytes and your overall acid-base status. Uh, but it's pretty rare that most clinics are not using a balanced buffered solution. So whatever you want.
0: Gotcha. Awesome. That sounds great. Now, this is fantastic. So obviously... Check your inhalant. Can we turn down inhalant? Bolus is a fluid. Start with the crystalloids and then uh, before colloids. Ketamine CRI is great to have in your toolbox. Everybody should be ready to reach for that. Maybe yeah. uh, know how to use it and, and have it ready to go. And then the dopamine and dobutamine are, are a last resort. The other point that you made today that I just I really want to hammer home because this is such a great point is local blocks as a as a, I mean, as a, as a safety protocol, right? Local blocks is a way to reduce the amount of drugs that we have to use in our patients to keep them comfortable. General safety, it's, uh, it makes all the sense in the world. So I love the beauty of managing pain and also making our jobs easier as far as maintaining anesthesia.
1: Yeah, local blocks, I mean, at my practice where I'm at right now, I mean, I am fortunate enough to be trained uh, under a pretty amazing anesthesiologist um, that taught me that, you know, local blocks, if we're about to do anything painful, anything from a neuter to a leg amputation to a tooth extraction, they deserve a local block. And if you are really blocking that nerve and you're not getting any reaction then you don't have to have your ISO up at 2%. You don't have to have that vasodilating agent going in so uh, rapidly. So you can turn them way down with a good local block.
0: When we started talking about dentistry, do you have any recommendations for where technicians or doctors uh, might look if they want to brush up on their local blocks?
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) This wasn't planned, but this is going to be a shameless plug. (laughs) Please. For the... uh, Uh, This year at the Anesthesia Nerds Conference, we are actually for the first time offering a wet lab on local regional anesthesia. Uh, It's going to be taught by two really great anesthesiologists, one uh, Mike Barletta and the other Tammy Grubbs. They're going to teach everything from epidurals to dentistry local blocks, sacrococcygeal blocks, uh, ultrasound-guided blocks, basically every single block that you could think of and use in veterinary medicine they will be teaching at this wet lab. Now that's not to say that this is the only wet lab you can go to, many other conferences offer wet labs. Um, WBC almost always has a local regional anesthesia wet lab at their conference and almost always NAVC does as well. So I would say, This is a skill that you do need hands-on. You can certainly watch videos, and there are videos out there. I mean, Vet Girl has one of my favorite videos on sacrococcygeal blocks in urethral obstruction cats, and I know dentists like Dr. Brett Beckman have really good online reading materials with pictures, so that's great. But for me, I think getting hands-on experience, feeling where those foramen are, feeling where the nerves exit the foramen, that's something that's really valuable for technicians and doctors alike.
0: Yeah, I don't think we'll be doing a uh, local block podcast any anytime soon.
1: Yeah, that would, be, that would probably be a tough one to do.
0: <laughs> no. Tasha, thank you so much. This has been wonderful.
1: Thank you so much for having me and geeking out.
0: Uh, So good. I love geeking out with you. All right. Well, I'll talk to you again soon.
1: Thanks, Andy.
0: And that is our show. I hope you enjoyed the amazing Tasha McNerney. I think the world of her. I enjoy her so much. She is so brilliant. I love talking to her and uh, and bouncing questions off of her because, man, she knows her stuff cold. Gang. Let me know what you think of the podcast. The email address is podcast at unchartedvet.com. That's podcast at unchartedvet.com. If you have things that you would like to hear and uh, how do you treat that kind of format, just ask me. I'll see if I can hook it up. Until we meet again, have a great, great day. Talk to you later.